This is the Rabbi Patrick Podcast, Episode 17, Becoming a Rabbi. I just realized how much I enunciated the words, becoming a rabbi. (laughs) I don't know why I did that. Uh, (laughs) And because I don't edit this podcast, because it's straight through mistakes and flubs and different words and weird accents and putting the... uh, uh, you know, wrong uh, strength on the wrong syllable, as it, <laughs> as you will. Um, you know, some fun stuff happens. So anyway, this is the Rabbi Patrick Podcast, Episode 17, Becoming a Rabbi. I wanted to do this podcast because for many years, people have been asking me uh, whether I was a rabbi or wanted to be a rabbi or when I became a rabbi, why I became a rabbi, usually because they want to be rabbis and they want some kind of advice or something like that. And I've come to realize a lot of things about that idea, not only the idea of becoming a rabbi, but then also what it means to be asked that question, you know, should I become a rabbi, what that question actually means uh, in the case of some people. So in this podcast episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about why I became a rabbi. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a rabbi, and I'm not necessarily talking about my life in particular, but I'm including the lives of of people who I have met um, and had a chance to talk to. And then finally, I want to give you some thinking points, some ideas about if you want to become a rabbi, what this could mean for you, what you're actually getting yourself involved in. What does it mean to make the decision to go to rabbinical school and to choose this particular path. So why? So the process of me becoming a rabbi, what being a rabbi is like, and some things for you to think about. So starting with my story. So I never wanted to be a rabbi. Matter of fact, you could actually argue, and this point is brought up in my friend Michael Crowland's uh, book, Oi, 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 Jews and Punk, uh, of which I am in the last chapter, um, that, you know, Punk Torah and what I was trying to do there was the antithesis of the rabbinate, really. You know, like, I believe there used to be an article even on Punk Torah called Be Your Own Rabbi, um, which I've come to believe is impossible. <laughs> but in any case, um, you know, that's really kind of the mindset that I was in. And it was a punk rock attitude. It was this attitude of uh, rejecting authority and, and taking on uh, authority for yourself, and that meant uh, forming your own independent minyanim. It meant uh, putting everything for free on the internet uh, so that you could learn um, and things like that. So you could say that really my early journey uh, was about resisting the rabbinate, resisting becoming a rabbi, resisting that, if you want to use the word calling. Things changed, and here's how they changed. I was in a meeting with a few people, and I was discussing things that I wanted to see Punk Torah do in the future. None of which happened, by the way. None of the things that we discussed uh, ever came to fruition. But in any case, I'm discussing these ideas that I had. This was several years ago, uh, very much in the early days of Punk Torah. Uh, Darshan Yeshiva didn't exist. One shul barely existed. Um, we had a couple of other websites that now are defunct. Um, but uh, 
having this discussion with them, all the things I wanted to do and how I really wanted to bridge the gap between the technological, the online, and the in-person. So that was really the theme and and just discussing a lot of different things. And I had (laughs) this uh, uh, proposal that I had written and I was discussing it with them and I said, take a look at this. Let me know what you think. So a few of these guys are sitting around and they're leafing through this and So one of them says to me, you know, none of these ideas are going to work. And there was a little bit of a pause there where I thought, oh my God, this is really bad. (laughs) But he said, none of these things are going to work unless you're a rabbi. And I sort of had this thought in my mind of, oh gosh, you know, now I need to find a rabbi. I need to find someone who wants to be a part of this. Who's going to want to be a part of it? What does it mean? What am I going to have to pay someone to like sit in a room and be the rabbi? And then whenever, whenever I need the rabbi, I just knock on their door and say, hey, give me your hexer, give me your your stamp, your kosher stamp, give me your seal of approval for me to make this video or to do this podcast or or whatever the case may be. I, I didn't know what that meant. So I'm sitting there and, and hearing in my head now 30 times in a millisecond, uh, none of this will work out unless you're a rabbi. And then I realized what was actually being said to me, which was, you should become a rabbi. And my friend said, um, have you ever thought about it? And I said, yeah, sure, I thought about it. Um, but I was in this particular place in my life where that, that just wasn't going to happen. Um, I had a lot going on in my personal life. Um, a lot of other things. I was moving. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. If you, if you look at, uh, there's a few videos, actually, very, very old videos on Punctura where um, I actually goofed around with the idea of becoming a rabbi and sort of sought out the permission <laughs> of, uh, of social media and, you know, validation from YouTubers um, about that. But, you know, it never happened, and I just kind of didn't care. And, uh, and I said, well, yeah, I've thought about it, but what, 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 ha- what is this? What have you? And he said, I think you should. And uh, so I ended up, I was driving home. It was kind of late. And I was talking to uh, my now wife. And I said, you know, what do you think? And, and she said, well, I, you know, I don't know. Like, that's kind of your decision. And uh, poor girl, I had just started dating her. So it's probably in her mind. She's like, oh, great. Like, I met this guy, and now he's going to go run off to rabbinical school and, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I, was, I sort of thought it through. And then eventually it came together that I was able to do uh, a few programs and study with a few tutors, um, and that the combination of all of those things ended up uh, providing me the ability to go to rabbinical school. So even though you could look at my history on Punctora and all of that, and the fact that I already had a four-year degree, uh, thank you, Mom and Dad, for forcing me to do that. Uh, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast about how um, I did two years of school and then didn't want to do anymore, so that worked out great. Um, but in any case... Um, you know, I already had a four-year degree, so I could go on ahead and join something, start something, uh, become part of something. You know, no matter what the educational program was, um, at least I was, you know, four years ahead of the game. I didn't have to start from the beginning like some people do. Um, and, uh, you know, there you have it. Uh, the combination, all of the study, the different programs I was in, and, you know, you wind up a few years later and you're a rabbi. So that's how that happened for me. So... What is being a rabbi like? I have had a somewhat unique rabbinate. I've only been a rabbi for three years. 
Um, and a lot has changed. So, you know, when I was uh, a rabbi just for Punk Torah, so I did that part-time, and then I worked a secular job part-time. Um, almost always have, by the way. There, I remember a few years ago, someone uh, wrote an article where they claimed, or not an article, a blog post, where they claimed that I was going to get sort of uh, fat off of the wealth of Darshan Yeshiva, um, which I thought was absolutely hilarious because <laughs> I've only ever really worked for Punk Torah part-time. Um, I've always had some other side gig that I did, but uh, and, and not in the Jewish community, by the way. Um, and I've never made any money personally off of speaking engagements or doing weddings or uh, anything like that. I don't take royalties from books that I've edited. Uh, all of it goes to Punctura. So I, I remember reading that and, and kind of like laughing about the idea of becoming wealthy off of Punctura. <laughs> but, but in any case... Um, so, you know, I was doing that. So I was the rabbi for Punk Torah, working a secular job as well. Um, and that rabbinate um, really kind of was the same thing as when I wasn't a rabbi. Uh, the only difference is that uh, online, people were emailing me about, you know, would you do this life cycle event? Would you officiate this wedding? And some of the Punk Torah community actually had me do their life cycle. So there's a few uh, Punk Torah folks who, you know, had me come and, you know, officiate their weddings and do their baby namings and all that. And that was terrific. Um, beyond that, though, being the rabbi at Punk Torah um, didn't, didn't really do much. It didn't really mean much of anything. Um, now, over in Darshan Yeshiva land, it was a little different. Um, and that's because although I wasn't the sponsoring rabbi for uh, the conversions that we did in the beginning, um, I was a rabbi who was involved. So that was different. That was sort of the one thing that I did that was rabbinical, if you will. Everything else was code and graphic design and things that, frankly, anyone who knows how to do web work uh, would be able to do. Eventually, Darshan Yeshiva grew, and it actually outgrew my ability to be a rabbi for Darshan Yeshiva. So I had to make a choice. Either I was going to be an administrator or I was going to be a rabbi in the, in the conversion program, truthfully. So I chose the administrator role, which you might think is strange because, you know, why would you think that a guy like me would want to be an administrator? Why would I want to be a person who runs a program? Wouldn't I rather, if I went to rabbinical school, wouldn't I want to be the rabbi? Um, and the truth of the matter is, yes, I did kind of want that, but... Really, I did a better job at being an administrator. I did a better job of doing the coding and the web work and hiring people and uh, talking about the program to media and all of these other things. I just kind of found my niche and I stuck with it. And the cool thing was, by sticking to what I was really good at, that I could do, that someone else couldn't do, um, I was able to kind of leave an empty space there for people to come in. And that's how really the rabbinical uh, staff of Darshan Yeshiva grew. Because I wasn't going to be the sole person who did conversion, education, and, and all of that. And so we went from, you know, two people, three people, you know, three people for a bet din, to, you know, now I think we have something like ten rabbis. Um, and that was over the course of a couple of years. So, you know, I really feel like that was a wise decision to make. Um, sometimes you have to contract in order to allow uh, the world to open up. As a matter of fact, there's a Kabbalistic, there's a Jewish metaphysical teaching that uh, 
in the beginning, God was sort of everything and everywhere, and God had to contract in order to give space to uh, creation. And so I think there's a little there's a little bit of that. I think when you run a nonprofit or a business or you're an artist, uh, sometimes you have to contract in order to create the space within which um, your craft or whatever you're working on can flourish. So yeah, so there I am again, not really being what you might think of as a rabbi, but I was still a rabbi. And now here I am uh, in this sort of next phase of my life. I actually am now a, for lack of a better word, congregational or pulpit rabbi. Uh, so I was honored with the opportunity to be the spiritual advisor, is the role that uh, I've been given, uh, for a community called Bone Kodesh. So we're not a synagogue in the traditional sense. We don't have a building. Um, we meet in people's homes. We meet in, uh, you know, church basements, and we uh, meet in uh, the JCC and other public places. We do Jewish life together. And that includes a lot of the functions you might think of as a synagogue, right? So we have worship and we have uh, religious ed, adult education. Uh, we have, you know, children's education, holidays, uh, all of these other things. But it's a lot more of the Chavara model or the independent Minyanim model. So now I'm in this position, which is a classical, for lack of a better word, rabbinical position. But even then, this position is, is unique. Um, and I'm still the rabbi for Punctura, which in and of itself is unique. So uh, I am certainly not, I don't think, uh, a good model by which to gauge <laughs> rabbinical future, rabbinical life. Um, for someone who is, say, uh, looking at it and thinking, well, gee, I would like to be a rabbi, and I can maybe model my future uh, off of what I'm seeing here with Rabbi Patrick. That's that's a, a bad idea, because really, truly what I've been able to do in my life um, has just found, I found it, and it found me in a really funny, odd, weird way. And... Um, so, yeah, so I, I, when I read about, you know, congregations that are hiring rabbis or nonprofits that are hiring rabbis, um, it's not something I can really relate to um, because everything that I have has just really become, uh, come into my life as the result of, uh, you know, a few YouTube videos. Um, and uh, I've just been very lucky in that way. So what do rabbis do all day, or what is it like to be a rabbi? So I've had several years of asking that question, both as someone who didn't want to be a rabbi, and someone who was thinking about becoming a rabbi, and someone who was working on becoming a rabbi, and now someone who is a rabbi. But not only that, having the opportunity to speak to other clergy of different faith traditions and to find out what they deal with. Um, and it's all the same. It's all the same problems. Uh, you're just, and, and issues and uh, high points and low points, it really, because you're dealing with people and their spiritual lives. Um, but it's not all that. So a few things that I've come to learn about being a rabbi, um, and um, this, doesn't, this doesn't come from any one person in particular. These are, you know, friends that I've had and then sort of social uh, functions I've been at where I've met random people and, and things like that. So uh, so if you know me, if you're a rabbi who knows me, and you think to yourself, oh gosh, you know, I said that to him, well, uh, maybe a few people said that to me, so uh, don't feel like I'm singling you out. So 
A few things. Um, so where what you do within your rabbinate um, is really going to determine uh, what kind of rabbi you are. So by that I mean this idea that you're going to go into rabbinical school and then become a pulpit rabbi. Um, I'll talk more about that fallacy later, but... Um, you know, that's one kind of rabbinate, and that makes you one kind of rabbi. Um, some rabbis are really great administrators, right? They're great business managers. Uh, some rabbis are very good pastorally. Some are very good in education. Uh, some are very good in programming. Um, and you also find your sort of age and socioeconomic um, and cultural and language and national strata that you work best in. Right, so some people are really great at being American rabbis abroad, but doing that same job, let's say, in their hometown, it just wouldn't work. Um, some rabbis are really great at owning their own thing. Some rabbis are terrible at that and should n never be entrepreneurial. They should work for a another organization. They're, they're better at that. They thrive in that. And this is true of anything that you do in life. I mean, being a rabbi is, is, is in a certain way like any other job. You know, different people have different ways of working and things that they do well at. And it's just important to figure out uh, what kind of person you are. Um, so the amount of work available in the synagogue world is, I think, declining. Um, and then the opportunities in the not-for-profit world are growing. Um, but they're not necessarily growing for people who have smicha, meaning people who are ordained rabbis. That's not necessarily something that organizations are desperately looking for. Um, so I've seen some rabbis transition from the pulpit world to the nonprofit world. Um, I've I haven't seen as many transition from the nonprofit world into the um, into the uh, synagogue world. That for some reason I just haven't observed that that much. Although I'm sure that happens. Um, what else? So. Being a rabbi means dealing with people. It doesn't mean necessarily even doing Jewish things. It means setting appointments and getting to them on time. Uh, it means uh, making sure that people's emotional needs are met, which is independent a lot of times of spirituality. Now, your emotional life, I think, is your spiritual life, but by that I mean people don't necessarily want Jewish answers to everything. Um, and sometimes it's actually inappropriate for you to try to nudge uh, Judaism into whatever conversation you're having. Um, I read a blog post years ago that I think is also true, which is that rabbis go to school to study for years and years and years, and then you come out and you don't necessarily have people to have those conversations with uh, when you enter into the nonprofit or the hospital chaplaincy or the uh, military or, or whatever role you decide to go into. Uh, your role is different. You're not going to sit and talk about Rashi. You're not going to uh, talk about Kabbalah. You know, you may be able to sneak that into some adult ed. You may be able to put it into a sermon, but that's not necessarily what's on people's minds all the time. Um, so, yes, you went to school to learn all of these things, but you may not necessarily use them, for lack of a better word. So, uh, you know, in terms of being a rabbi, you're really managing people. Um, you're organizing people. You're trying to get the best out of people. Uh, you're trying to mitigate problems. Um, and I think that that's true of any role, not-for-profit, synagogue, uh, whatever the case may be. Even in, you know, the chaplaincy world, 
in a sense, you're organizing and managing people. You may not be a manager. You may not be the head chaplain of a hospital or a hospice or whatever the case may be. And in fact, there aren't that many managerial roles uh, in that capacity anyway. Uh, but you're still nonetheless trying to think about what are people's needs and you know how do you work with others to fulfill them. So the idea that you know, you're going to go to school and then you're going to be this scholar and then you're going to go out and someone's going to pay you to be a scholar. Yes, that is true, but it is a lot, uh, it seems like it is a lot less true than you will come out of it and it will be your responsibility to engage and organize people. So something to think about. Um, other things that rabbis have told me as I am very new in my career and am learning um, <laughs> a friend of mine made a joke once. He said, if you don't like organized religion, you should become Jewish because Jewish is disorganized religion. Um, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, there's always some holiday. There's always something that has to be done. There's always some issue that needs to be taken care of. There's always some person that you need to meet. Um, and so you have to have sort of a stomach uh, for that. If you're a very type A person who kind of can't go with the flow, um, I think that you'll have a hard time with that. Um, at the same time, another thing you have to um, be careful of is that if you are thinking about becoming a rabbi, um, rabbis aren't necessarily revered, right? So if you're a person in authority, yes, there are people who will um, think very highly of you. Um, but at the same time, you know, look what has happened with the police recently. Um, a, a colleague of mine who's a police officer actually said, you know, the police and clergy have something in common, which is that we are people in position of authority. And when other authority figures who are not you do something wrong, if there's bad apples, if there's bad behavior, you're, to, you're the one that's going to be called on it. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. Um, I think also, and I, I wrote about this recently but haven't published it, there's this, um, uh, there's also an article about this too. I think if you Google it, you could probably find it. Um, it's called Please Bother Me. And it's the problem that a lot of times clergy aren't bothered, right? They don't know that someone is sick. They don't know that someone's marriage has fallen apart. They don't know that someone's business is collapsing and they're going to need to file bankruptcy. Um, they don't know these things because we have become little islands. Uh, we think that our problems are our problems. Um, it's a very sort of libertarian ideal of I just need to pull myself up by my bootstraps or it's maybe shame. You know, it's if I have a problem, then the world shouldn't know about it. You know, it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's sort of um, um, this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ideal of if it doesn't look like it, you have a problem, then you don't have a problem, right? It's kind of hiding the, the truth. Um, and so when people do that, unfortunately, as clergy, we don't, we don't know. I don't know if someone has a problem unless they tell me. So what's going to happen? Well, that person's going to have an issue or, or something, or you're going to uh, be perceived as failing, and you, you didn't know. Um, also, isn't it great to have people on your side? Um, and this is a problem, right? If people don't know that you're in pain, if you're suffering, um, and they don't know what's going on, then you're never going to have people on your side. And then you're going to feel like, why has the world abandoned me? And the truth of the matter is the world didn't abandon you. You abandoned the world. 
Um, so this is something that I've heard different kinds of clergy talk about, that um, you know, people aren't willing to share their pain anymore, or maybe they never did. Um, so that's, that's another thing that clergy uh, have to deal with. Um, the other, I guess, last thing, and there's probably far more than this, but these are the things that uh, people have talked to me about, I guess, recently, is the issue of boundaries, right? So I think we have a very idealized uh, concept of what um, sort of suffering for your people is like. Um, and the truth of the matter is, if you put yourself in that position where you suffer all the time as uh, clergy uh, and you let people take advantage of you and all of these other things, um, you end up ultimately not having the greatest net value to the world um, because you're constantly running on low gas. Um, and I've, I've seen people do that, and that's not a healthy thing to do. You have to figure out what your boundaries are going to be. Um, and, uh, you know, a friend of mine said, you know, you're not doing God a favor uh, by treating yourself like that. So it's, that's another thing to think about. You have to balance that against the urge that people have to say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to bother you, right? So that's a, that's a tough challenge. How do you be true to appropriate boundaries while at the same time helping people understand that you're there for them? Um, and that they can call it two in the morning. It's just that they can't call it two in the morning about things that aren't two in the morning issues. <laughs> so how you do that, I don't know. I think clergy for thousands of years have been trying to figure that out. I'm sure the great Kohanim, the great priests of the temple, um, had these kinds of problems and didn't know what to do. And I'm sure that the, the prophets uh, had this issue too. Um, and I doubt, because it's a human problem, it's probably unsolvable. So that's that. So... Last thing, which I guess I've already sort of touched upon a little bit, is you want to become a rabbi. You are someone who has called me, emailed me, spoken to me in person, and said, you know, I've always thought it would be a great idea to become a rabbi. So what do I have to say? What have I said and what do I have to say uh, to those folks? So I already sort of touched on it, which is uh, don't make me the example um, because I think everybody has their own story, and every story is unique. Um, probably no more unique than anyone else's, but you know, the reality is I came about what I have because I made some YouTube videos. Um, and then I just kind of let life take me wherever I want wherever life wanted me to go. Um, and that wound up being where I am today. Um, I really never resisted life at all. Um, and so I just sort of wound up in the position that I'm in. I don't know that that's necessarily how other people's lives work. Um, I suspect it is. I suspect if you somewhat go with the flow, um, you'll kind of figure out where you want to be. But it's very hard to live that way and at the same time to have very specific goals. Um, because if you have very specific goals, things that you absolutely have to do, no questions asked, in a sense, you're going to resist life. Um, and in doing so, uh, you're not necessarily going to have the kind of outcome that you, that you want um, because you're going to be pushing all the time. And you may end up finding yourself in a position where uh, you just become completely exhausted and feel like you can't take it anymore. So um, I know that that's a little rambly and weird. But ultimately, my point is that if you, if you look to kind of how I did it and say that's a good model for how to go about it, um, don't do that. Because um, again, I mean, I didn't want to be a rabbi, and now I'm a rabbi. So 
there you go, right? There's your goal setting for you. So anyway, so you want to become a rabbi. I guess I'll get to the important points. You want to be a rabbi. Here's some hard truths. So the first is that the occupational outlook is not that great. Um, There are opportunities in the Jewish world. If you want to do the things that you perceive a rabbi does, you can do those things without spending as much money on school as some people have to do, uh, without going through as much training as some people have to do, and you can do those exact same things. And you can, in some cases, actually have a higher quality of life. Um, So when people tell me, you know, they want to become a rabbi, I ask them why. And there's a few different answers that people give, um, and and they're always unique, but maybe I can sort of corral them into a couple of categories. So one is they really want to do a Jewish thing as their job. They want to be paid to do Jewish, particularly educational stuff. So that's one category. The second category is the title people. These are the people who, they just want to be a rabbi. They just want that title. That's very meaningful to them. Somewhat similar to that are the people who want to be spiritual leaders. Uh, they, They envision themselves as spiritual leaders. And they're Jews, so a Jewish spiritual leader is a rabbi. Right, so that's that's that group. So the educational group, the doing Jewish for a living money group, the um, the uh, title group, and the spiritual leader group. So um, you can be a Jewish educator without being a rabbi. Um, in fact, it's a lot easier than becoming a rabbi. The first way to find out if you want to do that, and actually that's just a general good life skill. If you think you want to do something, try it out first. So many people go to school to learn how to be something and then decide they hate it. That is such a common problem now in the amount of money that our country wastes on education debt because people think they want to do something. They, they don't even think about like asking for an apprenticeship or, or interviewing people who do that job to find out if that's a good job for them. They don't even think to do that. The first thing they do is they get a FAFSA. They go on ahead and get financial aid. And they sign up and then they get into school and they do however much education they need and then they come out of it and then they go, oh, okay, well, I guess I have to do that thing I wanted to do. And if they don't like it, well, you just wasted one, two, five years of your life learning to do something you don't like. So uh, if you want to do Jewish stuff, find a job doing Jewish stuff. And if you can't get a job doing Jewish stuff, maybe because where you live, that's just not an option, you can move. Um, Another option is volunteer. So volunteer, mostly because it's good for your resume, if you're thinking about then getting some education, you're going to need that. Um, you're going to need that on your application. Um, but also, be very aware of what you're seeing, right? So if you're volunteering for your synagogue, watch the rabbi. In fact, ask the rabbi. You may be volunteering to run the booth at Purim, and then maybe a week later you're handing out the books at the Shabbat service. Talk to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, I am interested in becoming a rabbi. I'd like to just follow you. For two weeks, I'll listen, I'll staple the booklets, I'll sweep the floor, I'll do whatever. Just let me be with you. You know, that's how the rabbinate started. It started with one rabbi training the next rabbi, having a student 
that's, you know, in the Talmud, the idea of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. You know, you would have these students and they would follow the rabbi. You'd watch the rabbi doing rabbinical things. And that's how you got wisdom. We lost that in America because we wanted to be like the Protestants. We wanted to have seminaries. Um, now, we had yeshiva, but yeshiva was a different thing. You went to yeshiva to be a learned Jew, not necessarily to become a rabbi. But in any case, um, you know, do that. Be, become like the ancient rabbis, uh, the rabbinical students. Follow the rabbi around. You may discover that what the rabbi does, whether it's in a synagogue or a nonprofit or a school, is not at all what you want to do all day. Um, and if it is, then your resolve will be strengthened and you'll have the energy to really move forward. Um, and you'll know for certain, and you'll be in a much better position than someone who went into school and comes out of it and has no idea what's going on. So do that. Get involved. You, you can't say that you want to do something for a living and then refuse to do it for free. Because the happiest people in the world are people who, if you ask them, uh, if you couldn't get paid to do what you do, would you do it anyway? They would say yes. So there's your opportunity. See if you like it. You gotta like it. That's the best piece of uh, career advice my father ever gave me. You gotta like it. So do that. Go apprentice. Find out what you if you like it, and if you do, go for it. Um, so that's step one, um, and that's the the sort of educator stuff. Um, the other part is the title. If you're interested in the title, you want to be called Rabbi So and So. Um, don't do it. Just don't. It's a bad idea. You're in it for the title. That's all ego. Um, go on the Universal Life Church website, uh, click and put your name in, and you can print out a uh, ministerial certificate, and then you can be Jewish minister, blah, blah, blah. And, th and that's good enough. You can perform weddings, I think, in most states uh, off of that. Um, and there you go. Great. So now you're a, now you're a wedding officiant. Swell. Go for it. Um, if you're just into it for the title, then you need to not go to school. You need to not waste your time. You need to not waste the Jewish world's time. So, don't do that. Um, if you're interested in being a spiritual leader, that may mean lots of different things for lots of people. I would encourage you, first of all, to learn uh, prayer book Hebrew. Learn the uh, Hebrew and the Aramaic that you need to lead a conservative uh, morning and a, conser a weekday morning and a conservative uh, Shabbat service, Friday night and Saturday morning. Learn how to do that. Then go to a conservative synagogue and see if there are opportunities for lay leaders. So go and volunteer. Again, I guess I keep going back to volunteering, but volunteer to lead service. Um, and, and learn those prayers. Learn how to sing them. Learn what they say. Uh, you can do that off of one book. It's called The First Hebrew Primer. Um, if you do that and you find yourself on the Bema and you find that you really like that, great. Then, then maybe being what you think of as a spiritual leader um, is the way to go. Um, and then I guess it goes back to volunteering again, shadowing the rabbi. Um, here's one thing about being a spiritual leader, though. You have to recognize that the chaplain role, like the role of sitting down with people when they're in pain or helping people through their, their spiritual lives, that is one part. Doing this podcast as a hobby is part of my spiritual, for lack of a better word, outreach or ministry, right? That's, that's one particular way 
in which I try to be a spiritual leader. Um, you can be a great leader who is spiritual, meaning you could start a nonprofit, you could start a company, you could um, build things, you could sell things online, you could run a great website or a blog or a podcast or an app and be a spiritual leader. You don't have to be a rabbi to do that. Um, now, you do not have the quote-unquote spiritual authority, but you can infuse spirituality into what you do. Um, I would argue that Jews are terrible at that. Christians are wonderful at it. Um, look at the number of businesses that are guided by Christian quote-unquote principles, right? Chick-fil-A, great example. Um, you can agree or disagree with the politics. That's not the point. The point is that that particular faith group has found a way to be spiritual leaders without being clergy. Um, and, you know, the people who work for those companies uh, often say that uh, they prefer what they do as opposed to working for a non-spiritual, non-religious, non-faith-based company or organization or, or what have you, that they're treated better somehow. So... If you want to be a Jewish educator, volunteer. If you want to be a rabbi for the sake of having the title rabbi, please don't. Um, and if you want to be a spiritual leader, uh, lead Shabbat services for some independent minyanim or for a conservative synagogue for a few years. Try that out. See how that feels. And uh, if not, then you know what? Learn how to do something. Learn how to be a plumber. Learn how to uh, build something. Uh, and, and build a, a company or an organization or a nonprofit or a social movement and infuse spirituality into that. Uh, and you will find yourself having a better spiritual life and better spiritual leadership than if you necessarily went the obvious route of becoming a rabbi. Uh, if I have not convinced you fully enough of the importance of really thinking through uh, what you want to do, um, then I will say this. You are totally stubborn. There is absolutely nothing I can do to convince you to really think through uh, the fact that you want to be a rabbi. So you're going to become a rabbi anyway. And uh, best wishes to you and let me know how I can help you. You can send an email to podcast at rabbipatrick.com and we can talk more about it. So until then, thank you so much and I hope you have a wonderful journey.